Exes for Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things movies, music, media, comics, and more, check out Cage Club at cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exes for Podcast, the show where we take a look at the many adventures of Marvel's Merry Mutants week after week through their many vaunted titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Today we have some new, some old, and a little bit of old made new again in the form of X-Men, New Mutants, and Cable. First up, we have the return to the Children of the Vault, as well as... Wolverine, Sink, and Darwin in the pages of X-Men 18. This issue was hotly anticipated after these characters were locked away over a year ago in the pages of X-Men 5. Now, whether you're new to the Children of the Vault or have experience with all 12 of their appearances, as we outline in this next segment, myself, Drew, and Evelyn talk a bit about the way in which this is a dynamic shifting point for the X-Men and how excited we are to see where Jonathan Hickman takes the story next. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me online at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at comic underscore canary. Hey, this is Drew. You can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at drewsifer3. That's at D-R-E-W-S-I-P-H-E-R-3. And we are here to discuss something, like, it almost feels impossible that we're already at an X-Men 18. Like, I feel like we just relaunched post-Hoxpox. This is wild to me. But here we are sitting on the heels of Jonathan Hickman's long-awaited X-Men 18, which sees the return of Darwin, Sink, and of course, everybody's favorite Wolverine. In a bigger picture here, though, we're talking about X-Men 18 and one of the most popular concepts that come along in the last, I'd say, 20 years in X-Men, the Children of the Vault. Now, Evelyn, we were talking in the green room, and you don't have too much experience with the Children of the Vault. Is that correct? That is correct. As much experience as I have with uh, this team, uh, just not the villains. So I'm excited to learn a little bit more about them. And now, Drew, I believe when we first started talking about X-Men together, this run that it, this is referencing was actually like your like entrance point to comics, right? Yeah, so I got started through this run so i know the characters a little bit like i well it was almost like going on 12 years from now so i remember like seraphina and and that but i i was only like half into it so i recently went back and reread it for this issue yeah i did the same thing i had to i couldn't help it there was something that drew me to returning to the Mike Carey run. And on the subject of the Mike Carey run, I'm going to take an opportunity to remind everybody one more time, happy 10th anniversary to Age of X. What a perfect little slice of timeline magic. And the entirety of the Children of the Vault saga actually rests at this point in 12 issues. That's X-Men 188 through 193, the kickoff of the Mike Carey run featuring Chris Bacalo, Supernovas Part 1 through 6. They would then go on to return in the page of X-Men Legacy, the continuation of Carrie's run, in issues 238 to 241, Collision, which was a four-part arc featuring Rogue, Magneto, and Rogue's amazing squad of X-Men as they made their way to Indra's home 
home in Mumbai. The next time we saw the Children of the Vault was X-Men number five during the John Hickman run early on. And that brings us here today. Now, the Children of the Vault are specifically enigmatic, and that's something this loves to cover. Initially, the Children of the Vault were introduced chasing Sabretooth in the pages of X-Men 188 before breaking into a facility to rescue and reprogram the then-thought-dead North Star. They did the same thing shortly thereafter with Aurora, leading the pair to attack the X-Men at the Children of the Vault's command in X-Men 189. While the devastation only took 20 seconds, it actually took more time than Serafina expected, which was an early indication of the power levels of these characters. Now, Serafina then, using Lady Mastermind's comatose body, accessed her illusion casting to go into Sam Cannonball's mind and create an entire artificial life for them. It would then come out to be discovered that the Children of the Vault were a Peruvian science experiment focused around creating temporal spaces to investigate parallel evolution. They were awoken on M-Day thanks to the enormous release of energy. From there, we would come to find out that the Children of the Vault were coming to the mansion to destroy the X-Men because the X-Men represented a threat just as great as whatever threat they were created to replace the population of Earth after. So they were going to get rid of humans and mutants and take the planet for themselves. Themselves. However, Rogue leads a complement of very different X-Men. Now, these X-Men were not what the Children of the Vault had planned for, because they were made of a number of wildcard villains. After that defeat, the Children of the Vault sort of went off into their own in Ecuador. We would then see them return in Collision, where essentially the plot of the issue didn't have too much to do with the Children of the Vault. What was significant was we met several new family members. One of their rank, Luz, turned rogue on the team and went to the planet's surface. From there, the Children of the Vault were sent to reclaim Luz, and it turned out that the Children of the Vault were looking to kind of give up on Earth and were instead hoping to create a world between worlds where they could start their own thing in a new void space. The only problem is that would have destroyed Earth in the process. However, they were able to defeat these children of the vault and the last thing we saw was one of the children introduced in that arc luz the sort of wild card of their team survived and now seemingly had feelings for indra while that didn't get picked up on in x-men 5 we saw the return of seraphina where she was being chased by wolverine sort of a nice parallel to the first story being Sabretooth being chased by seraphina and he sees her slip back into the vault, where upon communicating with her network, she discovers that essentially her family is dead. She makes quick work of her own upgrade and the restoration of her world and people, while the X-Men send in Darwin, Wolverine, and Sink. What is cute is at the very end of X-Men number five, there's a moment where Storm says, oh, I don't know, that just didn't feel quite right, blah, blah, blah. And like, you know, that's clearly the setup for giant size X-Men. So, okay, that's everything Children of the Vault you need in like two minutes. You're caught up. So Evelyn, hearing all of that, how does that change your experience with the concept of this issue? Um, I mean, it makes more sense, <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> I guess, uh, is the best way to say that. Uh, so I understand definitely, like, why they need to go in and see what's going on with them. It explains why they have this giant city that we're just kind of hearing about. It, it does answer a lot of my questions I had. So that was nice. <laughs> So, Drew, you had said that you'd read half of it. Now, I'm going to assume the half you had reread was Supernova's The Kickoff to Carrie's Run. 
Now, had you been familiar with the events of Collision, or was that a new layer to the Children of the Vault for you? Yeah, no. So I, I've only read the Supernovas arc of it, and that's really the only part of the children that I like pretty much know. So, Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of the magic of these characters getting to be used so seldomly. It keeps them enigmatic. Yeah, and one of the, the things that I wanted to point out is that their design has really been like upgraded. Like Seraphina's skin color has been altered. Like she has more of like a like a black kind of inverted skin color than before. I believe she had like a white, like a pale white skin color. I had thought that was a reflection of her upgrade in the system because when we see her at the beginning of the issue, she looks like her previous incarnation and it's after she performs the upgrade on herself that she transforms visually while mm-hmm. her teammates kind of look the same, but you're absolutely right. There is such a dynamic shift in how these characters were presented and the visuals given to them. I really agree. There's something brave about redesigning so seldomly seen characters, but still keeping them super duper recognizable. So I want to ask, are you a Darwin fan? Are you a Wolverine fan? Are you a Sync fan? All three, who do you guys, you know, who is your, your, your horse in this race? I love all three, but I'll admit, Laura Wolverine is kind of like where my heart lives. I mean, I'm kind of on the same wavelength. Like, nothing can be better than Laura Wolverine. But I do have a special place in my heart for Darwin. I think Darwin is just such a fascinating character and such a great mutant. And then same with Sink. I don't have that much experience with Sink. But I know that he's, again, a really, really strong mutant. And just the fact that all three of them are on this team together, it's like they really, like, stacked the deck on this one. Because these are some very powerful, intelligent mutants that are they're gonna kick some ass that's the mutant bus stopping in op city one more time that is the mutant bus stopping directly in overpowered city with a direct connection to oh my god that's so much firepower on one teamsville mm-hmm. drew do you have experience with darwin or with sync i have a feeling you know some laura <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i know laura the only familiarity i have with darwin is from the movie and then i don't really know sync at all but just because it's been a year since we last saw these characters like i'm in invested you know what i mean oh definitely they created a context by where you become emotionally connected it's actually in a lot of ways it's sort of like what goes on for the characters where they're sent into the vault and this sort of temporal disconnect creates this sense of immensity yeah so for those of you looking to know a little bit more about sync you should check out the pages of generation x now sadly sync is not one of the characters who gets to experience much outside of the pages of the original run i'm going to leave it at that for anybody who wants to read you can get some terrific sync which also features some terrific sync and monet stuff if you're a fan of that classic ship now darwin's a little bit harder to track darwin is a result of the run that ran parallel to mike carey's x-men when mike carey's x-men debuted it was the same month as ed brubaker's uncanny x-men for rise and fall of the shiar empire that run was a direct response to ed brubaker's miniseries x-men deadly genesis one through six which introduced the initial Krakoa team, which in many ways created the space for this Jonathan Hickman era of X-Men. You can find more about him in that Uncanny run, or you can check out the Peter David X-Factor run, where he is featured for, I want to say, about 30 issues there before making his way on to other titles later on. So, okay, enough setup. Now everybody knows who the players are. Everybody's got an even hand. 
this issue was a slow motion movie that played out so beautifully. Did anybody else go back and reread X-Men 5 for this one? Or was I the only nerd? You were the only nerd. Yeah, you were the only nerd. Sorry. Only nerd. <laughs> so, But now that, now that you say that, I'm like, fuck, I wish I did that. Yeah. <laughs> Here's why I did it. Because like the end of that issue, I remembered it, them being like, oh, it's been this much time. It's been this much time. What the hell was I thinking? They've been in... Okay, so issue five, the span there is from when they go in to the end of the issue is five months. Mm -hmm. So this has to take place within the time of that issue and how how it all fit together. Like, in some ways, this takes place between the panels of issue five. And it's such a unique perspective on it. I personally loved how, for lack of a better term, fancy flashy a lot of the pages in this were. I thought the stylization of the Children of the Vault gave me a sense of their unworldiness or their their otherworldiness. Did anybody else get that they really were meant to represent a parallel evolution? Yeah, for sure. So with that in mind and with everything going on with the X-Men and the idea of evolving mutant kind, seeing them indicate fear in regard to the power of the X-Men really reminded me why this is the great Krakoan age. So guys, talk to me. How did you feel about seeing this team of X-Men go after this team of otherworldly beings on their turf? Okay, so this has been a really anticipated issue for me. Just walking into this, like the art in it, it's literally just a vast city. So, and it, it's very overwhelming, even as a reader, when you're looking at it. So you feel that for them, that it is kind of overwhelming the situation that they've been put into. And yeah, it's overwhelming. I love that. It's, it's as encompassing as being put into a new world. Evelyn, did you think this represented a step forward for the X-Men in terms of danger level? Or was this for you pretty much on the level of Krakoa as is? Um, you know, I'll be honest, I didn't even think of it in terms of like the X-Men and Krakoa. I thought about it in terms of just this team of like this just this trio right now and i'm like oh these guys can literally survive anything not counting the movie which justice for darwin but um <laughs> the the team for them i'm like oh i hope these villains are super powered because they don't have a chance against these guys <laughs> like that's where my mind went now to quickly explain who the children of the vault are there are a number of the team. Now, the original team consisted of Serafina, Sangri, Rana, Kadina, Fuego, and Aguja. Later on, we would get Corregidora, Luz, Martillo, Olivedo, and Pedra Dura. So this focuses more on that original team of characters. And, you know, whether it's their designs or the fact that they are just so OP as fuck, there is something like Inhumans level powerful about these guys. So how did you guys feel about the children? Like, I think that Serafina is kind of the clear star and she was the clear star of the main cast of the original run, too. How do you guys feel about these characters? So I'm really bad at getting their names. Um, so I was just going to say Green Glowy Girl is badass. <laughs> I didn't really catch their names very well. Green Glowy Girl is Aguja. Okay. She was awesome. Yes, she is. I also, like, I know the characters by looking at them, but they're, like, their names don't line up with the, their faces. <laughs> I know Serafina. I know the guy with the circles on him. And Fuego. I recognize him a lot, too. Yeah. I think that they actually have very recognizable visual identities. So one of the things that most gets my attention about it is Serafina is best known for something 
that isn't actually in her power set, Serafina was best known for creating an illusionary experience in Sam Guthrie's mind during the pages of Supernova. She projected an entire illusion of 20 years of their lives together in 20 minutes. Now, Wolverine would come to sense her being in the room and ultimately disconnect her from Lady Mastermind, freeing Sam of her influence. But Serafina herself has the power to interact with technology. She does not actually have illusions. I think in that regard, she was free to represent a sort of unique narrative perspective. As far as the actual issue goes, I don't know that these characters received individual personalities, per se. I wouldn't say that they are flat, but I would say there's something about a beautiful design that'll go a really long way to tackling the reality of making people love a character. For me, I I will admit, the visuals of these characters do a lot for me. Do you guys feel like you got a sense of who these individual characters were? Or, I mean, are we just riding high on some really cool design and some pretty well-executed art? 100% agree with you that I feel like I really don't know any of the characters even with reading. Like, again, there's only 12 issues with them in it. So we can't really know that much about it, which is kind of the good thing as to why they're being used now. Because... I personally do think they are a very interesting villain group. Um, and I think that they are kind of looked at as a group instead of as uh, like individuals. So for me, like this is my first exposure to them. It didn't really come off as different personalities to me. And from what you've told me, it kind of comes off as this whole military-esque mindset. While they may have different approaches to said mission, like the panel where the, for lack of a better term, vest guy and gray guy with the rings, where they both had the exact same expression on their face, where they're like, eh? When Sync manages to get Fireboy's power, like that was just like, yeah, they probably have the same kind of personality reactions is kind of what I got from that. But one thing about that part is like the one thing to remember is if you don't know the children of the vault is that they're not mutants like they are like a post-human kind of society which is one important thing in like the Dawn of X world and that is like it says in that data page kind of the weird thing as to why Sink could take his powers because he isn't a mutant. Which I want to say just real quick, shout out to Dr. Cecilia Reyes. I don't know if you guys realize this, but the number of characters of significance in this book that are either women or characters of color is so significant. Even making room for it to be Dr. Cecilia Reyes instead of Dr. Hank McCoy is a subtle way to say that this is a pretty new generation of X-Men. I think, Mm -hmm. in fact, most casual readers, if they picked up this issue, wouldn't know who the hell Laura was, wouldn't know who the hell Darwin or Sink are, wouldn't recognize the children of the vault. This is actually a really bold new era for X-Men, considering Laura is the best recognized character, and she's considered not Wolverine. Mm -hmm. But to that end, I do love bringing up Sink's growing power. Sink predominantly featured in the 75 issues of Generation X and their tie-ins, and something I've said, I guess at length here, is that Generation X is frequently better remembered for its first few months of success than for what the book would ultimately become, which was passed down to older writers who did a great job, but never really understood the teen dynamic. And this idea of sync evolving really quickly, I kind of wonder if that's a result of how long they've been in the in the vault already. If he's synced to Darwin and he's evolving to become what he needs to fight the vault children. 
I don't know. I think we might even see some evolutions for Laura and Darwin themselves. I mean, there's something really powerful about that. It was hell to get out of there. You know, I want to know more about what happens between that explosion and when they get out. I do want to say, as a biologist, I do have a slight qualm with the science here. Because if you have listened before, I am a biologist who has a large interest in evolutionary biology, which is why X-Men is like, that's my shit. So... So they're talking about co-evolving. For layman's terms, think of it as sharks versus dolphins. Sharks are these fish reptile type things that have always lived in the ocean. And dolphins are these mammals that came back to the ocean, except they look so similar and they have so much similarities. They're um, literally the way they're shaped and everything. That's what co-evolution is, where it's two totally different animals, mammal versus fish, that evolved in the same way to survive in the same type of area that compete for resources. So in that regard, I think that is absolutely freaking brilliant when it comes to the children of the vault. Like I'm really like I want to read more now because like that just sounds so freaking cool. But when you talk about evolution and the next step of man, one, I've always been like always like the Charles Xavier kind of thing where he talks about like this is the next mutation of man because how do we get here? Mutations. I can't remember the statistics off the top of my head, but the amount of positive mutations that had to go in for human to be where we are now is like statistically nearly impossible and yet here we are so we keep evolving like we keep having mutations and potentially one of those good mutations will go up somehow so in my mind it makes total sense that sync would eventually be able to sync with these humans because even though they're being kind of manipulated into having these like new human type things they're just forcing mutations onto them that they don't already have So in my mind, as a biologist, I think it makes perfect sense that Sync would eventually be able to, with enough exposure, get their powers. Because all it comes down to is this next level of human, this next evolution of human. It's all mutation. It's all evolution. And so even if uh, there's different mutations going on to get there, eventually they all share very similar stuff that, to me, I think it's awesome, but makes sense that Sync could eventually do that, which shows how powerful he is that he was able to do in such a short time. In 5, Sync has powers. There was a whole data page about it. They talk about how Sync has begun evolving in ways that they're having trouble expecting. It's not, they don't think that they laid out that he would be able to uh, sync with the children of the vault in 5. Right, but they just said that his power set was raised a little bit and they were just kind of like, cool. (laughs) Yeah, and then they further explained and expanded on it with that it's becoming actually like difficult to chart. The expectation of what they thought they would get in terms of Sync's power growth is a little bit different. And, you know, that's one of the things that I kind of was hoping that the House of X era would maybe play on a little bit more. One of the things that we've been told is that the X-Men can evolve with their rebirth and their powers can be taken to new places. I mean, we see it with Monet and her ability to willfully change between penance and Monet form. So that's, you know, a pretty clear indication that when you come back, you can come back at your best possible quality of self. I know that there is a good portion of this mission that is essentially the three of them just need to live long enough to get outside of the vault. As mm-hmm. long as they can exit the vault, Cerebro is ready to get their brain signals, download everything they know, and they can be reborn. I think that's something that is maybe not being pushed enough in this story. They're not looking to survive. 
they're literally just looking to make it out alive. They don't need to make it home. They just need to make it out. And I think that that's something that is also kind of being underplayed. We have their powers advancing. We have the children of the vault's powers advancing. Mm -hmm. We have the fact that they don't need to survive. So much of this story is being treated so subtly. And I think that connects to the emotional heart of the dialogue. One of the things that most emotionally compelled me in this story was the idea of personal understanding of the world, right? That's really what they're talking about throughout the story. Sink is saying how even though they're all going to live the same days, what's going to be significant is how their brains create memories about what was important and about what was the key thing to hold on to. They're going in on, an, on a mission to find information, but even though they're going in as soldiers, weapons, disposable weapons, we're putting so much emphasis on their personal experience, not just as soldiers in the vault, but as people living through this temporal rift, living this extensive life period. Just before going in, Laura indicated that she was nervous. She actually says, I think you should send in Wolverine. And Wolverine says, they are. And he's trying to convince her that she's strong enough to do this because what they're undertaking, this is a significant ask for any X-Man. And I wonder how the emotional impact of that is going to be treated. This is now the second vault story with an imaginary life projected into it, if you think about it. Because when the X-Men come out, they're going to be reborn. How do you guys feel about the humanity being injected into this this soldier's mission? Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's kind of what I was thinking too, is that it, it does kind of feel like they are like soldiers going to like a different country, you know, and it's like a country that they've never been to before and that they've never experienced. They didn't know nothing about, right? And like, again, that is literally their exclusive goal is just to like get in, get out, just find out information. Yeah, information is the name of the game. They're only looking to understand the children of the vault better. And that brings us back to the point of Enigma. For our characters to be going through such a personal experience in an unknown situation to investigate a villain that they believe is capable of ultimately destroying them despite no knowledge of them. Cyclops says in X-Men 5, the children of the vault represent the utmost threat to the evolutionary future of mutancy, but we know nothing about them. That's literally hated and feared. And then at the end of page, the end page of issue 18, it essentially says that because the children of the vault fall outside of the realm of human mutant, they're okay to kill. Wait a minute. Are you telling me that the X-Men are creating a parallel by where they know nothing about these people, had one bad experience with them in those people's first time interacting with the human world, and now they have the right to exterminate them? And not only that, but it's you guys are coming in to our territory. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they didn't do anything to them recently. You know, like, we're just, they were minding their own businesses. And then the X-Men just came into their territory and then started attacking that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's like, it's not a good look for the X-Men. <laughs> and that is how I feel about it. Because at the same time... I don't know that I could make a different call. One of the things that I found so interesting is through the course of who and what the Children of the Vault have fought throughout their tenure, one thing remained consistent. They fought Rogue plus Cable, Mystique, Iceman, Lady Mastermind, Sabretooth. Okay, so it was Rogue, but it was essentially some villains and some unknowns. Not that Cable is the world's most unknown quality, but at that point he was a pretty unknown 
entity. He had just lost his telepathy. He had just lost his telepathy, and he was using the info net to communicate with the world. So he was in kind of a weird place now. Oh, sorry. In their second event, it was Rogue plus Annalie, Indra, Loa, and Magneto. That's not a group of X-Men you expect. Here, again, it's a group of X-Men you wouldn't expect. I'm maybe a little bit sad for the loss of Rogue, but Sync is acting as Rogue. Yeah. So... One of the things that makes these villains so interesting is they're an unknown villain quality. They're bringing out something real ugly in the X-Men. We're focusing on the humanity of these characters being sent off to war. This is the first time Krakoa feels like a nation because they just sent their children off to die in a foreign land for something they don't understand. It definitely gave me pause because I've been very concerned about the Quiet Council and their workings and what they decide to do. A lot of their decisions have been suspect recently. And so I'm kind of interested in seeing what kind of data or what kind of experience they decided warranted a preemptive strike because correct me if I'm wrong but this seems like one of the first like truly preemptive strikes that the X-Men have done in Dawn of X. Well let me ask Drew a question because I'm not sure how I feel about it but Drew you have almost as much experience with Serafina as a human can have because again you've missed three appearances of her. Do you feel that Serafina being seen running about through Ecuador where they knew that there were some children of the vault activity do you think Serafina even showing up on radar is enough to indicate this sort of proportional response from the X-Men? Like, yes and no, because they like saved her in X-Men 1. She was one of the quote-unquote mutants that were all kidnapped, um, and then she just kind of disappeared. So there was like two appearances in like the Hickman run where we've seen her prior to them going in the vault, and it is kind of just like, hey, like, like, what's up? (laughs) There's a bit of a disconnect between how she is initially handled and how she is like specifically dealt with because absolutely she has like this very one sort of like a mentiony appearance in the pages of X-Men 1 and that's it there's nothing to follow it that as soon as she resurfaces the X-Men throw the kill switch it's also really interesting that the, they're called the children of the vault Now, children is something we associate with innocence. It's also of note that while the first adventure features mostly mercenaries, (laughs) the second adventure sees the children of the vault face off against Indra, Annalie, and Loa, three children. Here, whether or not you think of them as children, Darwin is essentially a 20-year-old, Laura is essentially a 20-year-old, and Sink is 20, 21 years old. So my question then becomes, did we send children to fight children? And where are we drawing the line with this morality? Is there something about calling them the children of the vault, knowing that each one of them is a, you know, a nuke unto themselves that creates some of the context for our adulation for them? Do we forgive some of the potentiality of the fear of them because they're children of the vault? See, I kind of don't really look at it like that. I kind of look at it as more of like a title similar to like Destiny's Child or like... like. So you're you know saying I mean? Serafina is the Beyonce of evolution. Yes, I yes. completely agree with this. <laughs> Serafina on the kill. I am a thousand percent here for it. And Sangre is Kelly. <laughs> okay, so I love Kelly just as much as Beyonce. So like I, <laughs> I'm with you on that. <laughs> also love Kelly. 
so much. <laughs> so much, but love takes over. Yeah. They may not be children. To me, it feels more of like like an evolved kind of term. And it's very Hickman, you know, they are the children. You know, there could be a possible leader. They are not the leaders. So it's sort of like the way there's the Backstreet Boys, even though they're all collecting social security at this point. Yes. I guess another example would be like Charlie's Angels. And then Charlie is like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. I'm with you on that. So you don't think the etymology plays a factor? No. Now, how about yourself, Evelyn? Because you came into this with less knowledge on these characters. Did their name impact your understanding? Did you see Serafina, who is inherently a little doll-like looking? Did you see her as this potentiality of innocence because the name was misleading? Or am I reading too much into everything, like rereading number five? I definitely feel it's more of an innocent loss type thing because, yes, while they look young, while they might be children or have lost their childhood being raised to be these warriors, that's something that I think is so important right now in the Dawn of X because in Krakoa, it's been changed to let people have their lives, to let people be children, be innocent, have their own things versus, of course, Laura here who just poor baby and with children of the vault that's just where my mind immediately went is just it's childhood loss innocence lost where they're definitely not children or even if they are children they've been corrupted and used in a way where even if they were volunteers they didn't quite know what they were getting into and you know drew when you said this is their home like they're invading their home i was like man this really is like humans going into krakoa yeah. Like, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I will point out the first time they met the children of the vault, the children of the vault said, we're literally going to wipe everything off of the face of the earth and take it for ourselves. The second time they met the children of the vault, the children of the vault said, we're going to place our own reality between two parallel realities and then burn off the exhaust into your worlds, killing everyone here. Also, we need to put Magneto in a machine called the Angel Fire that's going to spin him real, real fast. And that was their plan. So I feel like with that in mind, there is some context for coming at them like kill, kill. But like at the same time, Magneto has been a terrorist and nobody is coming after Krakoa right now without you guys kind of laying the kill down. Yeah. And part of me is kind of thinking it is like, maybe they're a little bitter because they are human. I'm with you. Like I see where you're coming from. Like, we're supposed to be the special ones. We're yeah. the evolution. Uh-huh. And then another kind of angle that I just thought of is if you look at this issue and then the issue of X-Force where Xavier dies and how literally Krakoa was invaded. For them, it's all like, my pearls, like you guys, like these humans are invading us. But then the second that they have the opportunity to, you know, like they just like send their people into the vault and it's like, what? Yeah, like they're, they're very like, well, we got here first. So you don't get to be special. It's it's a real ugly color on the X Men. <laughs> yeah, it's not great. <laughs> this is like legit evolution gatekeeping, and I'm not here for it. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so guys, I got to know, where do you think we're going next? Do you think we're going to get a story of how the team escapes? Do you think we're going to have that play out over time? How do you think this Children of the Vault story is going to keep going? For my hope, 
I would like to think that it progresses sporadically throughout the course of Hickman's run, especially because we know Nimrod is coming back and Nimrod is a human robot sort of hyperfusion. And we know that the children of the vault in many ways are fused with their technology. I think there is a huge opportunity to create a parallel between the librarian from the pages of Hoxpox and where the children of the vault could ultimately go. What do you guys think? Yeah, I 100% agree. And I know that like the next issue also deals with the children of the vault. I do kind of just want to see maybe not the whole thing played out, but like another little snippet and then we'll get more of it later. Completely. It definitely feels like it's going to be something that is going to come up again. And I know we're going to be having a lot of like crazy X-Men stuff happening. So I would be very excited to see how they come back to this with because this is definitely not a one time thing. It's definitely going to come back. And I'm very curious how they're going to do that. I mean, for my sake, well, for my hope, I would like to think that there might be some kind of handoff at some point, it's not that I don't love that Laura, Darwin, and Sink have this incredible responsibility upon them right now, but from the end of one volume to the beginning of another was a year and a half, no Laura stories. I don't need another year and a half, no Laura stories. So I would like for these characters to either come out of the vault or the X-Men to make some sort of unholy decision to create a second one of them or something. But I am sad that you have a prominent woman character and two men of color all sidelined for this big, important job. I understand it's big and important, but it's sidelining. everybody welcome back nico again and this next segment new mutants continues its unbelievable transformation under the pen of vita and rod and how powerful this story has become focusing on a number of actually new mutants as well as some classic new mutant characters it's a brave time with brave storytelling for this title and it's truly been transformational to get to read josh blake arturo and jonah dive into a title that reminds everybody how to feel young and insecure in the best possible ways. Hope you guys enjoy. Welcome back to X's for Podcast. Today we are talking about New Mutants number 16. Written by Vita Ayala with art by Rod Reyes, letters by VCs Travis Lanham, and a stunning cover by Christian Ward. Vita gets their Claremontian threading going as we begin to see this title finally start to create an ongoing narrative. Gabby, Anole, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl continue to secretly visit with Farouk, while Danny and Shan head into Otherworld to search for a young mutant who got lost playing Truth or Dare, and Rain discovers that her baby boy Tear is not technically dead. With me today, I have Blake. Blake, say hello and tell us where we can find you. Hey, I'm your uh, friendly neighborhood ex-nerd, Blake. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BTMorgan85. I'm Jonah. You can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. Because if you want to see some, you know, ex-noobness, you can follow me there. Wait, was that ex-nudeness? No. Oh, well, no. We'll save that for the After Dark Twitter. No. <laughs> Wake up, you budget movie hooligans. I'm Arturo, that's Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. 
And as always, I'm Josh Wheel. You can find me at Asleep at the Wheel, W E I L, on Twitter and at Asleep at the Wheel.com. And for the next two years, as a Democrat running for U.S. Senate in the state of Florida, you can find me at Wheel for U.S. Senate, W E I L, the number four U.S. Senate across all social media and at Wheel for U.S. Senate.org. So I, I feel that, and as X's for podcast, after all we learned from having virtual calligraphy is Ariana Mar on in her interview earlier this month, that the lettering on this was a feast. There's so much more. Like, I know for me personally, I feel that when I'm looking at these issues now, the things that I'm seeing with the lettering, like noticing that like, ooh, this is mixed case. That's interesting. Um, and the things that I'm getting with the fonts, I, I, I there's much more appreciation. And so the start of this issue, stunning pages, the kids playing truth or dare, sneaking into other world, the, the devious uh, Jamie Braddock, but the Warpath journal entry. To me, the, the first big things, we have that that back to back on one page, the beautiful Reyes art of the dark, malicious King Jamie. And then the, the Warpath journal entry, which was really all goes to the letter. I mean, this is a Travis Lannan page here. Um, and a lot to kind of feel about because we haven't really gone into this is a character we haven't gone into personally in a long time. He has not been given uh, a strong personal arc, um, really that I can remember since the death of Caliban, which is going back quite a ways. So how did you all feel about these opening pages in our Warpath journal entry? Big fan. I continue to enjoy the way that different creators and writers use the white page and and I think this is brilliant because it speaks to the way that I think Vita is kind of centering the story around uh, around trauma, around around mental health, around recovery. We're seeing the, a, an approach to the new mutants that we haven't really seen. Before. This was just a really cool way of doing it. We don't see Warpath anywhere on panel in this book, um, but we get this great little quiet moment that is Warpath describing himself in his own word, and it's just brilliant. Um, I just want to read one line from it that I thought was so cool. I am a man who hopes to help those that come after to do more than survive. They deserve to thrive more so because we didn't have the option. And that to me is kind of like the, the thesis statement of what New Mutants is. And this place where the New Mutant team is, is now going, is now inhabiting um, as educators and mentors, you know, big brothers and big sisters, kind of like the seniors, the varsity team, whatever you want to say it, they're like, looking out for this younger generation that we don't know anything about um, and and I just love that. The idea of leaving it better for those that come out because we didn't even have chance I think speaks to kind of like the whole promise of this book. I agree I think that Vita really gets this dynamic between the multiple young generations the ones who've come up you know we have Truth or Dare in here and we have you know kind of like a frat boy system we have this and that but none of it is none of it is lewd like none of it is inappropriate it, it is all appropriately juvenile for them to kind of have to learn their lessons and go through their coming of age which is really like to me i i appreciate and i think it adds so much it, it makes this much more authentic yeah to, to piggyback off that uh it reminds me within the last few months i read like the new mutant 
Mutants, Academy X, and then New X-Men, Childhood's End, that whole glorious run. And that became like one of the favorite uh, X runs that I've read of like everything I've been going back and reading. And oh man, this is really hitting the vibes. Uh, Vita is is excelling. Like you said, there's this beautiful innocence on Krakoa, which is funny because in a lot of the other chats we've had about these X issues, we've, uh, I'm, I'm not the only one who's mentioned it. There's this like menacing tone underlying the plot like we, we all even through swords like we're all waiting for something big to happen and and that big thing to happen i don't think is going to be good it's going to be something bad and traumatizing and and you know there's going to be you know action and and villainy and all this but this doesn't focus on that this focuses on just the goodness and warm-heartedness of mutants which i think is just really smart like i said it reminds me of that academy x vibe where you get these new characters these new students and and watch them learn and grow and come together as a team and i feel like we're getting that here uh in this in this new new mutants uh with the new creative team and they're doing a wonderful job of it and i'm so so here for it all day i i love too because you mentioned how it's not like vita is not doing anything menacing which is completely true there are pages that carry that threat but it's all in the art it's all in reyes's coloring and in the 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 depictions or the shadows around certain characters so that way you still have this on one level explicitly like not menacing but then also that feeling that like uh blake was saying that there's something hanging or coming in the background that that, that there is something on the horizon yeah no reyes's reyes's art is absolutely on an, on another level and you know we're he, obviously people are making comparisons with sankovich i think it's very valid to compare the two they definitely have their own thing going but his ability to convey emotion and menacing vibes like you're saying it's just it's incredible and it's not just the line art it's the, the way the colors play uh and i agree with you guys that it, that this is like less of that you know underlying threat but there's definitely something uh something going on here i don't trust shadow oh, okay. that's ago, our next conversation <laughs> I was kind of ready okay. to like, oh, well, you know, Krakoa is about a new promise for everybody. And then, and then. I am really sketched out by the shadow. Okay, we're going to have a long talk about that. Let's move into those pages. So after we, right, we open with Truth or Dare and one of the boys gets lost in Otherworld, which is going to be important. We get the letter from Jimmy, and now we have our kids. We have Gabby, Anole, Rainboy, Cosmar, and No Girl sneaking off to see Ahmed Farouk. And I'm going to keep calling him Farouk because, in my opinion, I have seen nothing to convince me that he is possessed by the Shadow King or is a malicious or evil threat here. Um, but that is clearly something that is open to interpret, that is deliberately open to interpretation. And we get an amazing, also another trope of, you know, juvenile or youth storytelling, we get a body swap. And I think there's a lot to love in these pages. And there's a lot of deep emotional character work that was done as well. Um, beautifully done by Reyes. But this is maybe the biggest point of this issue, maybe the biggest sticking point, something that we saw here, um, definitely stuck with me as kind of the key event from New Mutant 16. Jonah, what are your thoughts on the kids going into the wild hunt and doing a little uh, mutant magic with Farouk? 
So when it comes to body swapping, I think it's a really interesting technique to force people and to force, I guess, mutants in this case, to say, all right, I'm going to put you in a situation where you have to understand what the other person is like. It's very literally walk a mile in, walking a mile in their mutant shoes. Not to bring in another company, but my standard for body swaps, I think of the Teen Titans episode where Starfire and Raven swap bodies. And they were having a lot of conflicts, but they at the end, they were able to understand not only a lot about their own powers, but a lot about the other person. And I think that is basically my my golden bar of you have to hit this high and how well done, well, you're going to do a body swap. And for me, that hits it. I think there was a lot of great growth, not for everyone there. And I don't think there was a beat missed. I don't think there was a line that was missed. I don't think anything was missing to make this scene better because I think all four of those mutants had a, a better understanding of what everybody else is going through. Oh, five. But Martha didn't swap bodies. Oh, I keep calling her Martha. No, it's no girl now. No girl is in Annalee's body. I, I'm, oh. I'm looking at the panel now. Annalee's standing there going body! I I have a body! No girl got to experience a body! Like, that was so huge yeah, for me! I, I can move! I can climb! Yeah, that was awesome. So this is one of my my only criticism of this, and it goes back to the lettering. This was the thing that I was saying I'll get to later. I think when you're doing body swapping, the letterist, I, I would love to see, and maybe Lanham wasn't allowed because of some font dictations, but I, I would love to see your speech bubbles either color-coded, which I know has accessibility issues, or different fonts, or some way of distinguishing who is who based on their speech bubbles. So that way, as they cross and we body swap, you have an auto automatic way of knowing who is in which body like unless it's supposed to be a mystery that you know this person's in here that because it was a little confusing i had to i had to do a little stop and really wait 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 wait. who's who's in here where is this there's a, there's an actual panel that shows it shows the man yeah and i had to like go back and i mean i was reading this uh, physical copy which made it easier but yeah i had to refer back to that to keep straight who who was in what body. But a really interesting you know, manifestation of mutant magic or mutant technology. Cosmar is a, a, a new character, new to everybody, basically. She's only been around for a handful of issues. Um, and we're just seeing now this this focus. And last issue, we saw, you know, Cosmar asking Danny Moonstar to, to go with her to the Crucible because Cosmar definitely has issues being in this body. She manipulated reality at the onset of her power and she you know, basically disfigured herself. She can't undo it. On next Twitter, I've read a lot of, you know, reads of her as a, or maybe I should say of them as a trans character. And I think that is such a valid story and such a complicated story to, to get across. And I love so much that Vita's doing it in a way that feels very authentic, but also isn't just that straightforward. It is still tied to her mutation and, and power set. Um, and I just think it's, it's really interesting. I think it's something that we're not going to see resolved right away. And I think that's very smart. That's a building store. There's definitely something there. 
It is. It's it's sad watching this character. And I love that Vita picked up on a character that, you know, Vita didn't make this character this way. You know, Vita saw this character that Brisson made um, and recognized the, you know, the body dysmorphia and and picked up on that. And, and we've been able to really see this character's pain. Like, you feel for it. And yeah, getting to see that uh, Cosmar got to be Gabby was great. Gabby getting to see herself and going, look at how cute i am is also great um uh her talking yeah, about like, rain boys uh water smelling weird yeah like i can't i can't imagine if my body is made of water like he's a teenage boy so i imagine there's a lot of bm and there's probably some uh maybe he needs to shower that was also when the experiment started to fall apart the water is starting to turn into steam and that's when gabby mentions that it smells funny analy as cosmar is heard and no girl as analyze arm is uh atrophying yeah so that's, yeah that that's when we start to see the side effects and Everything so far pulls them out really fast uh, but th- i love this uh i really love this scene uh, we get a lot of these a lot of character work is done in just a few pages by this doing this experiment uh and it starts humorous and it, and it takes a turn which kind of is like a metaphor for what this issue does i talked earlier and said that we don't get as much of like the menacing like threatening vibe but we do get a lot of emotion and a lot of sadness and there is there are some like broken characters here that are going to have arcs where they're going to you know hopefully get into a better mental state uh, as as vita continues the run uh i really so i love gabby and i will always call her honey badger i don't like scout i refuse to call her scout uh, i have i've only referred to her as gabby in this episode so far <laughs> same i i only call her gabby in my head but yeah she's definitely scout on page. but I, I really like we've we've seen this clone drama brewing for a while like earlier back in hellions and it continues now but when when i okay so when gabby and she's she's tiny you know and she's young but she has so much heart and she is a badass she is a murdering wolverine clone um but she puts farouk in his place uh she looks at him after the experiment when they all get back into their bodies you know just because you can be resurrected doesn't mean your body your life is cheap or worthless and just because you won't stay dead doesn't mean that dying doesn't suck and i was like damn man like that hit because you we do think of death death differently now in these x books how it's impermanence but also the the jarringness of like dying and coming back and this whole you know regrowing these mutants and downloading their their personas and implanting them into this biological husk and i mean it's 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 crazy but no one really stops to think about what that does for the individual other than like domino and colossus and x-force we kind of got into that dilemma uh previously but i really liked gabby standing up for that and and again like i'm kind of waiting for like the clone revolution on krakoa because it's it's brewing like something's brewing there. there there's gonna be and you know that page where gabby stands up to farouk was also one of the pages that really for me because i felt the way that Vita was depicting farouk that this was not shadow king that this was something separate um and it goes back to the way you know Vita wasn't the one who put him in x-men empire that was leah leah is the one who made the decision and she confirmed that on twitter that 
she put Farouk in there. And Farouk showed up with all the size to help save the day in Empire. Um, that was our first revelation that he was on the island. And, you know, looking at him here in these panels, the way that he's drawn and colored here and the things that he's saying, you know, that like, yes, you know, this was safe. You know, we made sure it was safe. And look, your body's already generating, you know, and this was a blessing for some other people. You know, we can find ways to make it less distressing in the future. You know, the way his body is shown, he's he's very non-threatening on these pages here at the end. Um, and I, I just can't. And even when Gabby runs off, like he tells the other friends, like, don't be too mad at her. Like, you know, she's going through some things. Like, I think this is an evolution of the character that I am excited to see because maybe I just don't want like the most powerful Muslim character on the island to be like a secretly evil terrorist on the island. Like, maybe, maybe I don't want everyone assuming that he's a terrorist, like, because, you know, that's what they think about him. That could just be me. I could be biased, but I think that we're getting a different Farouk here and I, I am excited and I'm maybe we'll be a little disappointed if I'm wrong. I wouldn't be mad if he did if he got something similar to a little bit of a sinister treatment where he might have some ulterior motives but ultimately he can not be selfish because I I'm very I'm always hesitant to call sinister good but I do think Farouk does show a little more goodness especially talking about that if he was in empire fighting on the lines it does show that well the council and probably everyone else is aware he's on the island and that they are probably aware that he could be a threat but look taking all that information in it feels like he's it was setting him up to be one but I don't think he's going to be and they very explicitly showed at the beginning of this arc that Farouk and Shadow King were two separate identities, that the Shadow King was something that possessed him. It wasn't that Farouk was always like the Shadow King was just the code name for Farouk. So if they're resurrecting him and going through and running Cerebro backups and checks on him, like I feel like would they not be checking to make sure that this massive psychic threat who has enslaved and traumatized so many of them isn't actually there on the island with them. Like, I, I feel like they would maybe, you know, be aware to look for that. Well, they've got the, the telepath task force. And maybe that's what, you know, Karma's going through, is that she's feeling the, specifically the Shadow King's presence, because I think maybe we're led to believe that it is Farouk, because I know that they have a connection uh, when Karma died. And showed back up with the Shadow King. That might be the dark presence that she's feeling like overlooming over Krakoa. And, and I like that subversion of thought. See, I, I feel that Karma has real trauma here. And the fact that Farouk is on the island and interacting with the kids that she's trying to protect is triggering some things. Like, she has work to do on that. But, you know, it was Shadow King who tormented her, not not Farouk. And however much you want to make them the same, if Farouk was a part of that or responsible or... Like, this is the... Everyone gets a second chance on Krakoa Farouk. And I kind of like, you know, jumping ahead here a little, my prediction for how this arc ends is is that I think that we find out that Farouk is not Shadow King anymore and, you know, Karma maybe accuses him or confronts him and that ultimately, like, she's going to have to do the work to get over that trauma and learn how to live and move on now that he's not a threat to her anymore. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I hope you guys are right. I hope I hope that there is some rehab for the character. That, that's kind of where I started off with Farouk in the last two issues. 
I kind of got very scared this issue. I think that's a deliberate thing. I'm probably still just traumatized from Zorn. I'm distrustful of mentor teachers that lure a little group of uh, wayward kids off into a cave to teach them and manipulate their powers. This is our most in that traditional X-Men reign of running the multiple stories kind of soap opera style through. Um, and it's only taken Vita three issues to get here. In three issues, Vita has more of this. And because we didn't even talk about the stuff with Jimmy and them, we didn't talk, uh, we talked about, but it's not in here of Karma's trauma with Shadow Kid. Like Vita has so many things built in just three issues to carry this title probably through the next 18 at least um which is really impressive yeah i i hope i hope this creative team is on the title for a very long time like a very very oh yeah yeah absolutely i I also i also love how there is beyond just like the huge cast of of the new mutants that we're dealing with there's also these kind of nameless you know truly new mutants new new to krakoa new to continuity that we don't even really get any information about um but you know you get a glimpse for their powers maybe a little bit on panel you see oh this guy's got you know gargoyle wings or, or whatever the case is uh but just kind of like fleshing out that there is a huge population on the island there's all of the there's so many characters that we haven't even touched on uh but just taking the, the opportunity to build that and put them on paper i think is important Part of me wonders, too, if, like, I got the feeling that if I went back and looked at, like, dug out some, like, old miniseries or other things, like that Brian K. Vaughn Chamber miniseries when he went to a college and they had, like, the mutant rights group on campus and things like that, like, that a lot of these designs or characters may have actually come from, like, other little stories that they're not necessarily created from scratch. Um, And I'm really interested to see, like, you know, when we pass spoiler range and the Wikia gets fully fleshed out on this, like, which character get tagged or what gets linked to other stuff because um yeah we saw a lot of you know extra mutants here that whether they're new or from or callbacks are fleshing out the world we have shan and danny's excellent adventure beautifully drawn through other world we have rain finding out that tear is not necessarily still alive, but not dead. And then we have a mutant riding a dinosaur. Jonah, talk to me about mutants riding dinosaurs. Um, so I would love a spin-off title of Josh's Otherworld Adventure. I would love to know what he's doing. Well, we kind of know what he's doing in he made friends with Whitechapel. He's, you know, exploring around the Crooked Market. He's exploring around, I believe, Sevalith, where death is now a vampire. There's a lot going on that he's doing, and I'm very interested to see how, A, he's surviving so long in Otherworld, and did Jamie kind of give him a boon of being charismatic? Because I have to imagine, there's always a twist with Jamie, and I, I, you know, don't trust Jamie. Jamie's beautiful and hot and so gorgeous, but don't trust Jamie on anything. You just smile and nod, and as he said, you don't want to make him bored. And Jamie is so twisted that you look at it and you can't tell, like, did he honestly help this kid just because he knows that, like, sending him off to get in all this trouble in other world is going to create all sorts of problems for the mutants back on Krakoa? 
or did he totally set this kid up for trouble because he's Jamie and nothing's as it seems like he could do either it, it was Jamie all along um and then the one thing I want to mention about the Shan Danny moment that I thought was a great moment beautifully drawn everything like the direction on it I thought it was stunning what I found so interesting, and I'm going to bring this to Danny's power set. And when we first were introduced to Danny, she often struggled with pulling people's fears and nightmares out. And I really find it so symbolic that in thinking about Cosmar asking Danny to be the one to fight her in the Crucible, because it's something that Danny struggled with for a really long time. And we saw with Annalie taking over Cosmar's body that he made uh, a hot dude, which was his dream and i was like first off yes second off it's the the parallels between them i think are just so amazing that i really hope there's a continued relationship where danny does recognize like oh i've been in their position so i hope that's something that danny will keep in mind also you know because we're getting so much danny shan i I feel like vita ships danny and shan like we're getting we're getting some close ties there but uh don't forget who the first mutant we saw on cage on page that Danny accidentally ripped their fears out and showed to everyone else was Shan. Shan. As they were giving her a haircut. (laughs) Like, what are your thoughts? Uh, Now, did you read the Hell on Earth War from uh, Peter David's X Factor where all the various Hell Lords competed um, in a contest to see who would be the ultimate Hell Lord to lord over all the Hells, and they had to kill Rain's child in order to win. No, I I read about it though because I was I was a little confused. Understandable, uh, but yeah, I didn't know about any of that, so I did some homework and re- and read about it, and I was like, okay, I do know her boyfriend. Like when I was reading the uh, Brubaker X saga and going into like Messiah Complex, I really liked them two together, and I mean they're fucking like in that book, and I was like. Okay, in wolf form and it's just like hot and so then i was like oh okay so they had they had this baby and and this baby's like kind of a god and so like does a god die can a god die what happens when it dies like you know so i kind of like this mystery that's being played out right now Uh, to go back to all these you know wondrous plot threads that vita's playing with i think this is a strong one i think the imagery we get in this issue with ron with rain is is uh is really powerful when when she reads the letter and and is alone and scared and and the last time we see her she's like in the fetal position and just crying there's some so many strong emotional beats in this issue rain's been through so much yeah rain rain is a rain has a lot of um past trauma always the baby daddy is Hari, which not an easy one to say but i i think goes back didn't she meet Hari in the new mutants annual three when they went to asgard the one that yeah, was he's from asgard, asgard. i knew that yeah. yes and then there's some real troublesome stuff with when rain got pregnant and she tried breaking up richter and shatterstar by telling richter it was his baby and then it came out as a wolf and it was obvious that it wasn't his baby and yeah yeah i you know i think we, I, I could have done i could have done without ever hearing about that story again peter david run i love so much about peter david runs on on both the different uh x factors but i hated the hell wars so much it was such a such a weird ending to an otherwise good run but yes the whole thing with the pregnancy was horrible and and there was a moment i think early on in in the dawn of x when you know when rain was resurrected where I think we all could have silently agreed that we could just move on without 
bringing up Tyr and Bermari, but here we are. And, uh, and, and I think, again, it's a credit to the creators for digging into some of the most complicated stuff that it'd be easy to say, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Everyone's been resurrected. Clean slate. Move on. Going back and digging now, into now it. I am a Peter David. It's been interesting. I am a Peter David fan, but I, I will say that Peter David runs tend to be very, you get caught up in them and you enjoy reading them as you're going, but they do not hold up to like after the fact analysis, like looking back on them or trying to explain or go through like they, they, like Peter David's, uh, Aquaman run is very, very enjoyable. Do not ever try to explain to someone Peter David's Aquaman run because you will sound like a crazy person. Um, <laughs> and some of his things in X Factor have that same way. You know, you, I remember enjoying it more when I read it the first time. And then afterwards, like sitting with it or thinking about it, like, yeah, that wasn't the, that was kind of problematic. Or yeah, that bit there really wasn't the best. Like we could have done without that too, couldn't we? But he did carry the torch on a lot of X characters for a long time, keeping them moving um, in the Marvel universe. So it's been interesting to me as, as someone who doesn't have as much X knowledge as others and hopping on for uh, house of X and powers of 10 and how this was supposed to be like this new clean slate. Um, but it's not. And we keep bringing up these like weird granules of, of past plots from the X mythos. And this is one of them, like the, this whole deal, with with rain i was like what the fuck like <laughs> I, and i want to i want to go back and read it but part of me and i've heard on uh, other people that that i trust and, and like like you guys with your opinions but like you just said like this this whole like ronnie past saga like was kind of messy and weird and like is it worth going back to oh, it, oh this is the s- not even the most problematic use of rain ever in comics. You keep reading that New Mutants Academy X, and you will oh, get I, to the I most got, I got there. problematic, <laughs> the, most problematic rain story the ever. Hot, the hot for hot for teacher, <laughs> like yeah, I, no I, way, no, no, yeah, way no, no. For, for the record, Rain has not had a good storyline in like thirty years of publication. Like Rain stories don't ever really work out too well for Rain. My so favorite this story era was the Warren Ellis Excalibur when she got to go home to her mama and be on uh, be on the island with Excalibur and have you know Kitty and Kurt uh, and Megan looking after her. Like I think that was probably the best era, the least traumatic era in Rain's life. Just bring back Cat's Eye and just have them hang out. Yes, why are Rain and Cat's Eye not just running around the like the island together? Like I think she just needs someone to talk to that can understand in like animal form and it should just be Cat's Eye. She's probably not doing anything and she loves being in her animal form. Yes, I I agree. I mean, that's where Rain and Danny's bond comes from, is that Danny uh, is able to kind of empathically sense and communicate with animals um, in in one of her weird and, do we want to say, I don't want to say racist, but definitely like, oh, she's Native American. So part of her, you know, we're going to pull on those tropes. I think it's maybe a little suspicious and we're, you know, we keep an eye on it. And we're like, okay, we're going to tread very lightly here because we don't want any optics to look bad on us. It's a Jace, yeah. It's So yet, yet again, 
Arturo, we have another moment of why we should bring Sabretooth back from the from the pits of despair so that we can have more animal mutants, be animals together, and be happy. And that's all we really want, John. And that's and that's you. what I want. If you're listening to this podcast, that's... like like we hope you are, <laughs> please please bring back Sabretooth and bring balance. Feral over there, feral sister Thorn. Yes, all of the little animal kitty cats and and, and doggos. Let them play. We have we have green fields for them. That's what they should do. They should make a dog park for all the mutants who can change into animal form, and then they make Empath have to go clean up the poop and put it in bags and throw it away afterwards. That's his punishment. Every time he uses his powers on somebody when he's not supposed to, he has to go clean up. I'm very surprised that we are back in Otherworld in a book that is not Excalibur, so I think uh, I think that's a really unexpected turn, and, and I'm here for it. You know, in the green room I was mentioning, I love that, you know, they've taken the, they've gone to, through all the trouble of making all of these new worlds and, and lands in Otherworld, and I love that, you know, the Vita just said, hey, yeah, let's do a little side quest. Let's do an adventure there. So I want to see what happens on that. More Cosmar. I did not think in that opening story that we would be, we would reach a point so quickly where we wanted more Cosmar, but it just goes to show, like, we can't sing Vita's praises enough. Like, what are you looking forward to as Vita wraps up this opening arc of New Mutants? You know, after that beautiful, beautiful double play, double page uh, splash of uh, Danny and Shan, I'm really excited to see how that venture goes these these rumors of them getting you know shipped together i'm i'm for that too like let's get some let's get some hot spicy love action add to the drama of this you know wonderful tapestry of of, of x sagas that we're getting right now i too am interested in in farouk and how this plays out you know the last time we got a big villain in coming to the front of the scene and not being a villain anymore was apocalypse and that ended up being pretty damn cool uh so i mean i'm i'm all for that and i'm just excited like i said i'm i'm excited about these comparisons of vita to, to claremont and and reyes to bill and and what that could mean in regards to the new mutants and the history that they're following and i don't want to say that they're following in their footsteps because they're very much doing their own thing but i think it's going to be big i think this is going to be uh, a creative a creative team on a on a very popular X title that people are going to be talking about uh, for decades. I think this is going to be that kind of big deal, and I'm I'm so hyped to be here for it. I'm hyped to be getting this monthly and to be on the ground floor of it, and to also be able to talk with you guys about it. You know, every every Sunday morning at the crack of dawn when Nico makes me get up. But that I'm just I'm just so excited, like yet again. And um, like I said, this just this creative team is just wonderful. Every page is wonderful. All the characters are wonderful don't be silly get this book like go go to your shop and buy it right now if you're not getting it I agree. Right now, this looks like this is going to be right up there, number two under Claire Monsonkevich in terms of New Mutant runs. Um, the the Vita Reyes, what they're doing, and the the seamless blend of kind of callback and familiarness to telling new stories and evolving characters. It's this this is great, and it, this is the title that needed it most. This through the first thirteen issues, this title was completely lost, and now it might be the most focused moving forward of anything on the line. Jonah, wrap us up. Take us home. So I think there are two things I'm looking forward to the most with this book. 
uh, in this title. The first being, I would love more white pages like the one on Warpath, because I think it's such an interesting character analysis to look at these characters who have been on teams, whether it's the Hellions, the New Mutants teams, or floating around wherever they were, being put in this position where they're now the leaders, and what leadership means to them, and how they want to lead, and what they like about leading, or what they're afraid of. I think it's a really great way to give the characters that we've already do know a chance to say all right i'm kind of growing up now and that's kind of what we want for the new mutants is to be like i'm grown up now but i'm really excited to see more of how are they going to handle the challenges of being in a leadership role and the second thing i'm looking forward to the most is more mutants to fall in love with and more mutants that i haven't seen before or who i don't think got a real fair shake in their first instances so i'm really excited for more characters i know that there are so many fucking mutants on Krakoa, and i know there's already so many names that i already don't know and that i still have yet to learn but i think still broadening this horizon of this is supposed to be a giant island that's holding i don't even know how many mutants that doesn't always have to be the same five everybody, Nico here one last time, and in this next segment, Maddie, Kyle, and Evelyn all take a look at Cable's most recent outing and what it really means to be individual. Now, Cable is a character who's had multiple iterations, multiple bodies, he's been reborn and he's died, and this is the first time we've ever seen an iteration of Cable so young have to grapple with this complex identity of immortality and mortality all wrapped up together. It's been a really exciting story to see unfold over the last couple of months, and we can't wait to see where it goes next. As always, guys, we love making this show for you, and we love that you guys listen along. If you like what you hear, go ahead and like and subscribe. Check us out on Apple Podcasts. Leave a review if you like it. You can follow us over on Twitter at X's for Podcast, on YouTube at the same name, where we're putting up amazing videos of similar content just like this, as well as over on Patreon, where you can help keep the lights on and decide how we're going to run things going forward. As always, guys, can't wait to see you next time. Keep those mutant lights lit, those Krakoan gateways open, and we'll see you. Hey guys, welcome back to another fantastic episode of X's for Podcast, where we take a look at all things X-Men. My name is Maddie, and as always, you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely Covetous Man, and over on Twitter at Basely Covetous. I'm Kyle. You can find me on both Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary, and you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at comic underscore canary. And we are assembled today to bring you the latest in all things Cable. Today we are looking at Cable issue number eight, Mind Dinner with Domino, written by Jerry Dugan with art by Phil Noto, letters by VCs Joe Sabino, and design by Tom Muller. After his last team-up with Rachel, Cable enlists the help of Domino in tracking down the remaining missing babies that were abducted by the Order of X at the instruction of Strife. Their search takes them across the globe to Tokyo, where, in a Galador-themed gyoza restaurant, the two discover a clone laboratory full of kid Cables. And after quickly dispatching the majority of the clones, Cable and Domino pursue the last one standing to no avail. 
Meanwhile, we're given another glimpse at the last days of Old Man Cable. Now, admittedly, just to get us started here, I was originally devouring this title every Wednesday when it dropped, until about the time that X of Swords went into full swing. And for two issues now, my interest has been a little waning. No disrespect to Dugan or Noto. It's it's still a fantastic title. It's still a beautiful title. But I'm curious to know, how do we all feel about the current run of Cable? Eight issues in. I think because I'm also reading X Factor, where there's kind of this, like, are they, aren't they cloning type situation, where we definitely have some sort of like biological thing also going on I feel slightly underwhelmed that two different people and writers are going in kind of the same type of direction and as much as I love the X books one thing that I always talk about and what I really love is individuality and different stuff so while it could be cool if they eventually overlap at the moment it just feels like two totally different stories that are kind of just like parallel to each other with kind of similar types of stakes and such so it's nothing on them it's just i think it's just different communication within the x team itself and i'm curious where it's gonna go but individually if i try to forget about that i kind of like it so i i'm kind of confused about pretty much everything that's going on in cable right now but (laughs) (laughs) let me put it this way you know how we've been saying that it feels like Logan is in way too many books. There's too many Nathans in this book at the moment. <laughs> there are too many Nathans running around this book right now. It's it's getting a little bit out of control. We have first we have Kid Cable, we have Old Man Cable who keeps coming back in flashbacks and we've actually encountered the the I almost said still living. He was very much dead. The very much dead corpse of Old Man Cable during this run. And now we have Strife. And then this issue, we got a literal baker's dozen of Kid Cable clones. That is, that is, Kyle, you hit it right on the head. That is Logan levels of extreme. And don't forget about middle age uh, Mm -hmm. Nathan as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) As we now know that the uh, blonde head of the Order of X must be a middle-aged Nathan clone as well. I was kind of surprised by that. I was I was like, did I miss something in the last issue? <laughs> I did have to go back and reread the last issue too. I'm like, wait, remind me? <laughs> you know, and I, I think that I think that this I because I also had to go back and reread the last issue. And I wanted to talk for a moment about cable number seven because I think that cable number seven was an excellent outing for for the creative team at large. I think Dugan and Noto really did an outstanding job on seven. Uh Noto's work is probably Probably a little bit more outstanding on eight because the the Tokyo Galador themed restaurant and the dozens of cables really gave a lot of motion and a lot of spectacle to play with. But seven really was a very tight sibling caper story for me. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that I wasn't ready to see, I wasn't expecting to see the team up that I was given. Although maybe that is just foolish on my part to not expect Cable and Domino to team up together. I was expecting maybe a decompressed Cable on his own moment. And I think that that's maybe where the the pacing didn't sit right for me. But it's also very difficult to dismount from a line-wide crossover like Ten of Swords, especially Cable having been swept up in the undertow of that and and considerably suffering for it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. I 
he definitely seems like he's still kind of struggling with the confidence uh, that he's lost as a result of uh, Ten of Swords. So, yeah, yeah. And having to kind of approach Domino knowing his, I guess, his future and her past. I'm sure that that wasn't that great of a confidence boost either. Oh, no, Mm -hmm. for sure. There was, I don't think that there was anything about the two of them working together in this issue that either of them took away fondly, you know? And it's it's not even that it was a botched mission or anything. I just feel like, you know, like you've said, Cable, Cable seems to, you know, I think he anticipates a relationship with Domino in some capacity not like a romantic mm-hmm. relationship but i feel like he is he is in a constant state of anticipating what their relationship is instead of realizing like the actuality of what it is and domino can't fully step outside of her association with old man cable to connect to kid cable so i think you know and she had a line towards the end of this issue where she was like it's not that i didn't have fun or anything kid but like please lose my number for a few years and i just think that that was so funny and fitting mm-hmm. and apt Mm -hmm. that moment was super cute but you know I do want to give credit where credit's due and I think Jerry Dugan is clearly giving his best effort at stitching back together the fractured elements of this run from issue 7 reintroducing the Order of X Dilemma to a nod in this issue at the Space Knights of Galador are we on board for the continuation of the pre-Ten of Swords storyline, the Order of X baby napping, or is there some other aspect of Kid Cable that we wish we were getting instead? It felt weird having that storyline start and then just kind of get uh, cut off because of Ten of Swords. So I'm glad that we're back on track with that storyline. I get that. I really do. Evelyn, how do you feel? See, I was going to say, I really enjoyed kind of this detective kind of thing that Cable was doing and this like team ups that he's been doing. So I kind of like that he's been teaming up with different people, both people that we've seen before, like Domino and people we haven't seen him really team up before, like Rachel. And I kind of like seeing the dynamics because that's something that really has interested me in the book series in itself was young Cable and like how his relationships and dynamics are going to work with people so for me I kind of like the mix match of people though I kind of wish it was more of a going back to like the detective kind of like glass issue rather than just a shoot him up kind of thing even though that is kind of his deal you know now I, I just want to take a moment and touch base here because we we do rotate our roster when we cover books everybody thankfully seems to express an interest in covering just about everything so there re- really is rarely an instance that we're like please god would somebody read Savage Avengers <laughs> oh god please would somebody, geez would somebody just read strange academy like it never breaks down mm-hmm. that way but now kyle i believe you're not the biggest cable fan correct i i wouldn't say that i'm not the biggest cable fan it's just that i don't really have a lot of experience with him so it, kid cable's pretty much all that i've dealt with and I'm enjoying where it's going, usually, and I think I'm a little lost trying to get back on track of things. I definitely understand that, and that that definitely mirrors 
my relation to the character as well. I'm much more familiar with Kid Cable than I am with Cable on his own. The the bulk of my Cable reading actually comes from Cable and Deadpool, which really was more of a Deadpool vehicle in my opinion. And maybe some of that is having the content of it been lost on me from not being a Cable fan from the jump. Evelyn, uh, for everybody listening, what is your experience with Old Metal R? So my main experience is pretty similar where I got the most exposure to him as uh, Deadpool and Cable. I loved that run. I loved reading that. I thought it was a really fun dynamic. Um, However, my brother is obsessed with Cable. So even if I haven't read much about him, I know pretty much everything about him because me and my brother, we have this whole thing where it's just like, I'm going to talk about my favorite character because no one else understands. And they're like, yes, do it. Go. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that you have that like support system that keeps you like comics accountable. Yeah, and that's why he knows that's, too much about Emma Frost. That's that, and that's <laughs> okay. I feel like I feel like something about being a. I'm assuming you're a natural blonde yourself. No, I. <laughs> really we're not gonna let that go to air or maybe we will okay that's funny though because everyone always assumes because i was actually born blonde so i joke i have like blonde tendencies but i actually am a redhead are you a redhead really a natural redhead well guys you heard it here first the comic canary is a redhead by birth that blew my mind i'm actually gonna take a large leap back to your cable knowledge (laughs) for a moment in the interest of grounding my brain uh in my skull and say since you seem to then have the most experience with cable or at least exposure to cable in some sense you know i've made no secret about my touch and go history with classic comics consumption and as such i have an incredibly limited exposure to strife so is there anyone among us who feels confident giving us a little history on strife i i happily take uh take the origin i know in in roughly the early 39th century the infant son of scott summers and madeline Pryor had to be rescued in the past to cure him of a techno-organic virus so as a contingency plan the mother ascani cloned the child in the event that he not survived the process and the original child lived and during an invasion by the canonites is whisked away to safety and the clone is left behind to be raised by apocalypse as an equal and opposite soldier to the original but is there anything that i'm missing that really pieces together who he is for a modern audience I mean, it's exactly what you said. He's basically, he's a clone that is raised very general-like, very similar to Cable, but not without, or I guess without, the compassion and mercy that Cable occasionally is able to show. Um, I like to think of it in a way of modern audiences who may not be that familiar with it that have been reading the current X-Men stuff. Remember the timeline where we see um, Apocalypse um, in the 10 timelines where um, we see Apocalypse as like running the mutant show um and just how everyone is kind of in that little one back like way back in powers and house of x think of it as this guy being raised in that type of a situation and how fucked up that makes you okay oh okay did that help yeah that no that definitely that definitely definitely helps to recontextualize the character for me because i you know and i wanted to ask and while not, you know, doing our best not to headcanon a cable number nine, is there any guess that you would posit from this issue as to the nature of why Strife requires mute babies from the Order of X? And I ask primarily because the parallel between Strife's own origin 
and his mission is a little too on the nose. Stolen clone baby steals babies. Yeah, it, it's definitely going in the direction of raising these babies in possibly an accelerated way to have soldiers. Um, if it does not go that way, I'll be pleasantly surprised. But I don't think I would hate it if it did go that way. Okay. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely, I feel like, you know, and I, I don't want to say low-hanging fruit because I feel like that carries such a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like it would be the most streamlined or straightforward. It would be the obvious choice matter of taking it would be a li- yeah it's a little bit the obvious plant you know kyle what's what are your thoughts on strife's baby mania mm. all about them babies well i'm wondering if maybe he's collect maybe he's working with sinister collecting mm. them to get their dna because okay. because Sinister has been dabbling in his in his cloning. Yeah. Sinister absolutely has, as as we've seen in the most recent uh, Hellions arc that came spilled directly out of Ten of Swords. So, and I'm sure nobody here is really quick to die on the hill that Sinister would not enlist <laughs> the help of somebody like Strife. I, that is that is not a battle that I'm really going to fight mm-hmm. for. You know, I think that he'll <laughs> I think that he'll just about side with anybody for any personal games so ooh, all right definitely i i would like to think that it's going to be more of a steal the babies clone the babies rapidly age the babies kind of Mm -hmm. deal i want it to kind of be a hodgepodge of both i really want there to suddenly be baby clone army (laughs) i think it would be absolutely hysterical (laughs) If, if we just got if we got a variety of different ages of like oh and and because of this issue in my head they're all cable they're not all different mutant babies. I was like, wait a minute. No, I just want Clone Wars with Cable. Can, <laughs> can I just say that, the, that when you said baby army, I immediately thought about from the Muppets because I just recently like just binge watched oh, all the Muppets. This may be a really out there reference, but I just recently binge watched like all the Muppets and they have like this whole thing of like these baby thieves, the, the greatest baby thieves in the world. And that's just immediately what I thought of, which is a lot of baby cables like puppets just marching off to war and <laughs> that's my I... image right now <laughs> this is incredible i love um, it <laughs> i was i was not at all familiar with uh the baby thieves of the muppets but now in my head in my head i'm doing muppet babies as thieves which is a completely different <laughs> reference so I'm imagining kind of like old westy so, bandit style Muppet babies. So imagine Cabbage Patch Kids, except made of felt. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, I super am, creepy. I am actually. I, I have, I have had to look it up, and I am pretty intimately familiar with the babies <laughs> of the Muppets. Um, I'm just trying to. I think my brain is trying to soften it into something that's like less terrifying. Um, <laughs> That's like, for that matter, and and my parting anecdote before we return to Cable, if you'll take this commercial break with us, the Menomina Muppets, <laughs> Menomina, terrified me as a child because I had my tonsils taken out when I was five and both my parents worked. So they just kind of like set me up in bed and like my grandma was in the living room. And so I'm like swaddled in this tremendous king size bed watching the Muppets on the TV. And like they both come in from the sides, the Menominas, and they're like, meep, 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 meep. 
And then they keep going off like the side of the screen. And I was so doped up at five years old from surgery that I was afraid they were going to like pop up at the foot of the bed and be like, meep, 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 meep. <laughs> um, so however much of that makes it to air, um, enjoy it. Truly that, that came from my heart for you. I hope it's so, all of it. <laughs> I hope it's all of it too, but you know, you get what you get and you don't get upset. I, I want to jump back for a moment. I want to jump back to the beginning of the issue and I want to take it around full circle. The issue opens with Domino waxing poetically about the intangibility, for lack of a better word, of her powers set against a galactic backdrop. Was anybody else expecting that intro to make a full circle journey this issue with the meteorite? No, but I was pleasantly happy with it. Uh, yeah, I, it was <laughs> it was pretty awesome. <laughs> I, I really I wanted to I wanted to lead with that because I I really can't stress enough how much I thoroughly enjoyed Jerry Dugan. I think his work on Marauders is absolutely incredible. I think his contribution to a lot of the crossovers that we've seen um, is really incredible. Um, but I, I really think that this issue, that was the smartest thing to come out of this issue by a mile. And it really helped to just so neatly encapsulate this as a quick one-off domino cable adventure. It started right in the middle. It ended exactly how it told you it would in the beginning. If you caught it, it was just super, super clever. Because, mm -hmm. like, I wasn't even sure, like, at the beginning, or at the end, I should say, I got it at the end. I'm like, no, that can't be. And I went up to the beginning. I'm like, ah, oh, that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> in case you missed it the last cable clone was struck down by a meteorite introduced in the first panel of this issue um if for whatever reason you jump to this out of order welcome here you are in time space and you are you are comforted and welcome with us so and i feel like that really encapsulates the entire thing about domino as well where she truly like her powers are just pure luck she just has the universe on her side. And I feel like that was just such a great way to really show that because I think modern audience audiences, and I say modern audiences with um, 2018 plus, where we haven't seen too much of Domino in like recent comics. So people might not be as familiar with her. So I thought that was a brilliant way to just kind of describe her powers a little bit. Yeah, this worked really well, especially compared to issues of X-Force where her powers were kind of acting up and that other character had her powers. It, I think that this demonstrated how they work far better than that particular arc did well i you know, and that's that's so interesting to me because i i found myself walking away from this issue thinking a lot about the nature of domino's powers uh, as we stated earlier the issue opens with a broad explanation of domino's powers if you would look at it that way shortly after we discover that our heroes have sojourned to tokyo on simply a hunch now i'm one for trusting numbers and domino's track record is pretty unbeatable but that said do we think that domino knowing to be halfway across the globe was a bit of a reach like i always likened her abilities to being an unconscious manipulation of probability within proximity yeah yeah that particular part was a little um seemed a little far-fetched but i think part of part of it was that she just really wanted some gyoza yeah <laughs> i also really want some gyoza me too fairness. 
I and I I think I think Domino has helped me decide on what dinner is going to be tonight. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, this issue it was so much more than just Domino though. There was a tremendous amount of cable, an uncomfortable amount of cable, as we mentioned before. And we find cable facing off against a dozen clones of himself. And for somebody who only just found themselves, so to speak, in the event of Ten of Swords, this must have been pretty traumatic. You know, do you see this event exacerbating the dissonance that Cable is experiencing between his old and new life? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Him realizing just how much he or his his dna is being used to affect uh the events of of the world yeah this could definitely if really affect the way he deals with things i think yeah i you know and i i really hope that that kind of permeates the the ethos of what this book is or can be because you know clearly given the tag at the end of the issue the old man cable story doesn't begin and end at his death Mm -hmm. there's more that dugan wants us to know and subsequently there's more of an invitation to compare the two cables which i mean i feel like it can't be helped even if they didn't want us to so i kind of like that the writers are giving us that opportunity to do it in a way that they kind of have control over the narrative a little bit like when it comes to these type of characters especially time traveling ones that have multiple time traveling stories you are definitely going to see people comparing them to who they were before we already see that with the dawn of x with so many different characters and so now um instead of just like setting it up to be like no this is canon now kind of thing is like no we accept that other things were written and happened and that you're going to compare them so let's make sure you know exactly which things we're referencing so the things that you're comparing them to are what you, you want you to compare them to kind of deal i don't know if i'm explaining that right no no you you, you definitely are i think I think in that way, and I I wanted to kind of take that a a different way and say, in referencing that that frame of reference, that that dissonance between them for Domino's powers, for example, I thought that they were more proximity-based, but by her assumption that they ought to be in Tokyo at that time is a big reach, but not quite as much of a reach as a meteor being introduced in the first panel of the issue and crashing and, and resolving the issue itself, so... I think I am I am further complicating this point by bringing up another point, but I follow you. Mm-hmm. Well, no, like <laughs> just to go back to that point, like I think that it is awesome that it's so far fetched for Domino because for other far fetched things, yeah, it's it's stale, it's done, it's gets old. But for Domino, that's exactly what it is. It's this far fetched, ridiculous coincidence things that happen, and her just wanting a nice meal in Tokyo leads to Cable literally finding the guy he was looking for and she's just so blase about it like she just has no fucks to give she's just like oh i heard shooting what's going on and she's like oh i guess i'll help like it's just fine i'll clock in like she just goes with the flow too and i think that really complements her powers like her personality because if i had perfect personality i would be anxious all the time like okay what's gonna happen okay like she just goes with it and i adore her for that you know and i i absolutely love that about domino too and i i love that you can see a positive take 
in the disconcern of Domino in this issue because I was reading it myself and being a little like panicked by it. I was just kind of like, when are you going to help? <laughs> when are you going to jump in here? Because nobody is more capable of helping right now than you are. But, you know, that said, she obviously seems a little unconcerned with the mission at hand here. Uh, it isn't until she sees Cable being absolutely overwhelmed that she clocks in. Do you think this is part of a characterization of her due to the years that she spent being led around militantly by Cable? You know, sort of to say that with lax leadership comes lax participation? Uh, I definitely think that she was overestimating Cable's capabilities. I mean... Or <clears throat> underestimating the situation. Yeah, that too. Um, or or third take fucking with him. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that could totally be it as well. <laughs> or she's just over it. Uh, <laughs> like I would. <laughs> and th- uh, isn't that the beautiful and poetic thing about Domino? Is that any any one of those four could absolutely neatly be the answer, and you just be like, okay, that makes sense. <laughs> it totally works, though. It totally works, and you know. Once once she realizes the situation, she, like somebody who has been trained by Old Man Cable, she completely changes modes and she takes out pretty much all of them without, yeah. without, barely without blinking an eye. And with shots in the shoulder, no less, mm-hmm. like, like yeah. just straight downed them. Um, or the, no, excuse me. I'm confusing this moment with Rachel from issue seven when, when Cable takes them all down with a shot in the shoulder and Rachel catches the baby. No, Domino went right for the head. Domino took down 11 of 12 in a, in a moment, which is absolutely incredible. I, another thing that I wanted to bring a little bit of a light to in terms of talking about the characterization of Domino is the back and forth exchange between Beast and uh, Domino talking about the the Logan-sized mess in need of cleaning up. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> she goes, uh, uh, Cable and I went to Tokyo for gyoza and ended up causing a mess, a decent-sized mess, a Logan-sized mess, need a cleaning crew. And all Beast has to say is, that's not the business we're in. Will any of the mess be missed? If that's not the most appropriate Beast response ever... I don't know what is. With our criticism of him in X Factor right now, like it really just feeds into that, just how we're all feeling about him right now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird that she was considering the clones Strife clones and not Cable clones, but even though they were in young Nate's body. So I don't know. This it, The whole thing was kind of weird. Yeah, I would say so, especially, you know, and if we're just talking about moments in this book that felt a little weird for me, not, you know, I wouldn't say it was a bad moment. I would just say it was a clunky moment. It definitely worked in terms of a visual medium. It worked for pacing for me. But when in the third act, Domino and Cable are chasing down the last remaining Strife clone and they are felled by a stun gun being dropped into a puddle. Mm. That was a moment that really Phil Noto brought to life. There was Mm, incredible motion and the shock was instantaneous. But if I, if I read that without a storyboard, I would have been like, okay, um, that seems like something Domino might've avoided. That seems like an obvious blind spot to me. And that also kind of seems like a little too obvious of a Kid Cable prank to pull, like a Kid Cable stunt, because don't forget we're, 
we're less than 10 issues into this run we've seen him replace a a like cell battery with a nuclear explosive and blow an entire species of cyborg alien mm-hmm. you know centazoids like to, to smithereens mm. that that seems a little bit like kind of one of those like wily e. coyote merry melody stunts he'd pull it does and i almost like that he was able to pull it off even against domino but i would like to point out like i'm not diminishing your point or anything if Domino didn't hit the ground, they would have been hit by the meteor. This is very true. So in a way, yeah, that is, that's kind of point. get that. But at the same time, I kind of like that he got the, like the wily coyote on him. Yeah, I you know I guess I guess part of me is like I'm trying to like really become a better person like with every day. Like I really want to just be like bolder and better. But then there's sometimes when I like read Kid Cable and I'm like kind of want to watch bad things happen to you you just kind of look a little too smarmy and you just you kind of have that like fucking face on and i just want to hit it it's like and and i really can't stress enough how beautiful and perfect i think it is that they're setting up the potentiality for him and quentin choir to be like love interest foils for one another Mm -hmm. like not not directly but through the cuckoos Mm. i think that's incredible because that is two smarmy sides of the same smug coin Mm -hmm. (laughs) they've got a type yeah yep they've got a type and it's all right whether he's got pink hair or a metal arm he's he's gonna get it um but speaking of pink in a weird roundabout way because i guess most people would have considered his power signature to be purple um why what is the extent of cable's telepathy do we know truly so it's mostly unexplored is kind of the sense that i get from it because he doesn't really practice it he uses his other stuff a lot more broadly he while he says it's like i'm a telepath too and i come from a family of strong telepaths and they're always quick to kind of shut him down they're like yeah but you never practice so you're not as good so there's all there's all this potential that is like hinted at but whether or not it's actually going to ever be explored I don't know if that's going to be as of yet. And wasn't Old Man Cable pretty much using the entirety of his ability to keep the techno-organic virus in check? I I could not confirm that for you myself, but I'm sure an editor's note might. Hey everybody, Nico here, and yeah, the best way to explain Cable's telepathy is that Cable's telepathy and telekinesis are a result of machinations by Mr. Sinister that were best meant to create the most powerful child possible. Apocalypse, of course, couldn't stand hearing there was a most powerful child possible without getting his hooks in him. Now, Cable's telepathy and telekinesis is supposed to be like gene levels of incredible. The thing that holds him back is holding his techno-organic body in check. As far as Kid Cable and this idea of the Krakoan era of rebirth, I would have to imagine that thanks to that kid cable would be able to reach the upper echelons of kid cabledom but that's my guess i think that if so the fact that that is not something that kid cable has to deal with would leave him with a much greater threshold with which to explore the possibilities of himself as a telepath you know a a functioning capable telepath because i'd like to think from the gray family from the summer's gray prior incestuous fuck pit that (laughs) he's that he was spawned from that is at least at least you should be a beta level telepath right like at the very least you you sure you're a third stringer it's fine 
but like you can still like pack a punch. Yeah, you'd you'd definitely ex- expect that he, with practice he'd he'd be a relatively powerful telekinetic. Speaking of telekinetic abilities, at the end of the issue, we cut to old man Cable, and he he actually uses his his abilities to gain access to some weird mishmashed uh, tower. Yeah, you know, and I I I think that there was there was something to it that was you know foreboding and ominous to begin with it definitely looks it the actual like art of the page reminds me a lot of star wars the the you know very blood red you know orange gold sunset vibe Mm -hmm. but once he entered i you know he obviously misses a tripwire and then the floor gives out beneath him i i'm so curious to know what's going to come out of this and it's like everything disappears around him too it was Mm -hmm. it was weird i'm kind of wondering if maybe this is more strife Ooh, i wonder what's gonna happen the only thing that i really caught was he said the same thing that was said earlier which is um, i need a worthy opponent 